This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Content is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hi, I'm Jared Dicker of The Washington Post. What I love about content is the opportunity to storytell um, in any situation whatsoever, whether that is journalism or advertising or, or music or physical and digital art. The opportunity to really help shape the understanding of what you're looking to do and help direct that directly to an audience, I think is the most amazing and efficient way to be fluent in language throughout all areas of work. Imagine being in the middle of the moment of a content explosion for a major publication like hmm, the Huffington Post. And it feels about the same as if you were there with the Beatles when they went supernova. Coming up, a music journalist turned content veteran who's now being charged with creating emerging products and new revenue streams, one of the most noteworthy publications anywhere, i.e. the Washington Post. And it's a conversation that feels more like a... It's a masterclass, basically, on the ethos and the theory of content creation. Also, how the content space is changing into a new model. How he flipped it all, moving from making the content to actually being the leader for the business of making the content. The rise, the fall, and the rise again of the publishing world. And who should actually be curating the content? that the consumer consumes, his philosophy on balancing work and family life, and the future of consumption. And is there a liberation of the creator in the making? From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business, conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Thank you, Jared, for joining us today. Uh, really excited to get going on this conversation. Um, I am Michael Villasenor, uh, Creative Director at Hearst Newspapers. Um, I'm joined by Ritesh Gupta, who is the Creative Director and Filmmaker uh, at Vayner. I'm also joined by Natasha Trollton-Brown, who's the COO at Clippin. Um, Jared, we've worked together for some time. We've been friends as part of that. Uh, you have also seen the entire sort of uh, arc of how content has changed over the course of our careers. Uh, tell me a little bit about those layers and how you've been a part of those sort of changes in in content strategy and production. So one is um, I hate generalizations, and I think content has become one of the worst of them, right, where <laughs> we really don't even know what that even means anymore. There's a John P. Barlow quote that I'll never remember, but um, – if anyone looks it up, they'll see that he kind of said that like content's the worst thing that ever happened to information like that category because it really is meaningless right at this point. So, um, so yes, I've seen the whole wave of it <laughs> and have strong feelings behind it. I mean, when, um, when I started my career, uh, I wanted to be a musician. I was not good at any instruments. So I said, I'll be a music writer. Uh, and spent a lot of time really focusing on that and really a huge fake it till I make it type strategy. And uh, like it was early, not early web, but early engaging kind of PR companies as to like what to expect and what they should be looking for when it comes to like content on digital. So I would blindly email uh, a publicist to say like Trey Anastasio of Fish or Dave Davies of the Kinks and say, hey, you know, I started this blog. Uh, I've interviewed all of these artists, which was a total lie right at the time. Um, um, this is how much traffic we get, which was a total lie at the time. But there was no comm score. There was no ways of measuring the web or, you know, measuring the value of content. And what I found is everyone said yes. And I was like, holy shit, like I'm blindly asking celebrities and people out there across the web, like if I could interview them and put information of them out there. Um, and they're saying yes. So so I learned two things really quickly is one, uh, people love talking about themselves and will be extremely willing to engage in something if it means that they could get their message out there. And two, I found that the structuring of content and information and being, the, uh, and being able to have control of that uh, is a really powerful thing, right? Like um, when we think about how content has evolved, I think depending, again, as I said earlier, like I hate the term because like whatever lens you put on of, okay, I am a content creator because I am blogging about the company, right, that I am um, an executive of, or I'm a content creator because I'm reviewing someone else's 
content, right? Which may be music or art, um, is an extremely powerful thing that really helps shape and shift not just society, but your business and everything else. So um, when we talk about kind of the evolution and seeing it from both sides, I think it's a very important skill set. Like I always say, I was an English major in college because I didn't want to take tests, right? And I felt that if I read books and could write essays, I had somewhat control of my destiny because I'm writing it, right? And I'm really the one who understands it and I can help dictate the results rather than having some prerequisite understanding of what the answer Answer should be. Uh, and that's kind of an amazing thing that you've seen throughout the evolution of how people leverage and use content, right? Everyone started a blog. Um, everyone found their voice and put things out there. Twitter's opened this up in a million different ways, which kind of really redefined what it meant to be connected to people and what it means to put information out there. Like, to me, a tweet is content. I actually find it insane that Twitter doesn't monetize people's IP. And we could go deeper into that because uh, I have strong opinions there. But um, Content itself and the evolution of where it's looked at is actually an amazing thing because I think it's something that's core to society. Like the way that we we speak and we hear and we and 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 we taste, right, is also kind of the way that we need to control our feelings and emotions and show everyone who we are. And content is like me wearing this baseball hat and the same T-shirt that I wear every day because it's my identity. Um, that's kind of how it's looked at today in all uh, kind of in terms of being able to run the gamut of how everyone kind of looks at it and puts it out there. But yeah, content is kind of identity, no matter how you look at it. And the definition just has not changed. It just identifies differently. Right, right, exactly. Like, it's something of substance, right? It's something that you assume you could consume or that you could share or that you could react or respond to. Um, But the way that it's documented, right, and and kind of lasting has constantly changed, right? Like, like there is so much content um, that was probably created hundreds of years ago that is gone because there's mm-hmm. no cloud-based servers, right? Or, or ways, or like books, right, weren't being bound or saved, right, to, to the lasting effect that they are today. Um, but yes, I think like it hasn't changed, but the way that we're able to kind of keep it holded and recorded has changed, which has been absolutely amazing. Can you list out the stops along your journey to where you are right now? What are the stops in the content world that you've made and how do they help shape your view, your worldview, your vision, the mosaic of the way you see this industry? Yeah. So um, the first step was really kind of on the creative side. I, I, I had a blog. I wanted to kind of... I mean, to be completely honest, I wanted free concert tickets and, uh, you know, I wanted to meet artists and musicians because that was my obsession. So I found that the easiest way was to kind of interview them and review their work. Um, I found, again, kind of how powerful that was to really be able to start containing these messages and giving people a voice. Um, Like, I literally framed the whole entire thing after Almost Famous, the movie. Like, I was like, wow, like, what if I actually applied those tactics to something today? Like, would it work? Like, holy shit, it works, right? Um, Where that actually changed is quite interesting. Like, I never, ever, ever thought that I would leave the music uh, space or the creator space. Um, I'm still, you know, very, very much involved in it. But what actually changed was uh, I needed to make money, which I think is like what changes everyone's right. Like people say like like advertising or money or revenue kills the dream. 100 percent revenue, like personal revenue and income killed the dream uh, because I needed to figure out how to kind of supplement and make money off these things. And actually, like in a very serendipitous way, because it launched my career, I was on Craigslist looking for jobs and there was a job at the Huffington Post, right, which at that point was a blog. It was before the AOL acquisition. Um, It was a blog that was out there by Ariana Huffington. And the job was on Craigslist, which if you could believe like this was only 2009, I think. So like it wasn't that long ago, but Huffington Post was posting jobs on Craigslist and I applied and I didn't get it. Um, But they reached out afterwards and they basically said, hey, look, we're starting this new team, um, which we're calling social marketing. We know that today is native advertising. And um, there's only two people on this team. And we want to think about new ways to make money for the Huffington Post. We know advertising will struggle, right? Like they were way ahead in thinking that sort of way. And we know that advertisers and brands are looking for new ways to build value and leverage the web. 
what can you do, right? What can you build? So they wanted to take kind of creatives and creators to be able to go and start building this new way of thinking at the Huffington Post. They literally offered me double what I was making, which wasn't even a lot. And I'm like, I'm in, right? Never I sold out. <laughs> I actually like, like, it's so funny back then to even think about this, but I like put it in my um, contract. It wasn't really a contract. I was an at-will employee, but like saying like, can I still write for my blog? And they're like, sure. Um, but that was the launch of my career and really understanding the content life cycle because we built, I mean, it's arguable who invented native advertising. I say we did right at the Huffington Post back in like 09 and 2010. Jonah Peretti was still there, right? Paul Berry was there. Uh, Ken Lear, like the whole, the whole HuffPost mafia at its ethos was there. Um, and we kind of built this thing out of nowhere, which was how can we tell stories for brands and people who may not necessarily know how to tell their stories in an authentic way to an audience, leveraging amazing technology that's built for a distributed web. And when we sold to AOL, that exploded, right? Everyone was like, well, what does this mean? And are these new ways for us to bring money? And does that really bring value for what we're looking to bring to the table? Um, and what's that narrative? And that's where it all kind of shot for me, where um, from then I went to Time Inc. really briefly. Um, Chasing money? To, yeah, to make some money. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to be completely honest, that was the move, right? It was like, wow, like, well, well one, it was, wow, I was like, like two years ago, I was smoking cigarettes and waking up hungover and, you know, having to write music reviews to like, wow, the Harvard of magazines <laughs> want me to work there. Shit. Like, I'm yeah. in, right? like, <laughs> like joke yeah. on them. Right? Yeah. Um, and 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 like that was an amazing point, too. Like, like at that point, it was, well, what new products could we bring? And what's the value of time as an identity? And, you know, what's the business of this look like uh, left there? We got the HuffPost gang back together to build Rebel Mouse. uh which is still going in an amazing technology and product about like how do we build content management systems for the distributed web. We built the Dodo, which everyone knows very well about in right. terms of like content and growth built on Rebel Mouse, Axios, a few other huge platforms. Um, and then I ended up at the Post. And like what's really interesting as someone who kind of like started in content and journalism, um, now I run engineering teams and product teams and revenue teams and strategy teams and all of these things. But the one skill, right, that I have that's unique is storytelling, right, is content, is fluency and being able to speak languages, which you really learn throughout this whole kind of life cycle of your career is extremely hard for people to do. So if it's something that's innate and it's something that you enjoy doing, holy shit, double down on that because no matter what you do, right, that's a core need for anything that happens in society. So just, I'll go ahead. Just going back a sec to that seminal moment where branded content was a thing suddenly. How was that received in the marketplace, those initial conversations? Yeah, so so it's a good question because now I have strong feelings about branded content. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just in general, I just don't like like I get it, but it's not like to me it's like 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 there needs to be something more at this point for how we're thinking. At that point, there were two ways to look at it. One, back in 2010, it was a huge moneymaker, which it still is, but the margins were huge, where now the margins are low. So we used to go in, and I remember like talking to big brands, which I won't name, but like big brands that had their own blog, that had no traffic going to their blog, that were investing in creating content that no one looked at, and we'd go to them and say, hey, look, we're going to take this content, we're going to put it in our content management system, we're going to be able to tag it and do it in certain ways and put it out there, right? You're going to pay us 50 grand. We'll have it on the homepage one day. We'll put it on a vertical two other days. And then that's it. It would literally take an intern three minutes to take that content, put it into the system. And because our CMS was distributed and one in SEO and one in social, and that's all that mattered at the time, right? Was like winning in search. No one really cared about domain or 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 URL, which I'd love to go deep on in a little bit because uh, that switched. Um, that was the move. So we would literally pay an intern, right? Or, or a junior employee to just upload the content and publish it. And then we'd make money. Now, branded content campaigns, right? People are spending like half a million dollars to just create the freaking campaign. And like, no one knows, like, does this even work? And is it valuable? And is this just a great, like, marquee execution for us to show? Back then, the brands that we worked with were like, wow, we're spending money, but we're putting it on the Huffington Post and we're getting like a million times more reach and engagements to the point where I remember there was an IBM blog because the Post had blogs and slideshows. That's how branded content started at the post. Um, and I remember uh, John Kennedy, I think from IBM, wrote a blog about green energy and sustainability on the Huffington Post. And a senator 
came into the comment section and started engaging with him directly. So because of a piece of branded content, right, an IBM executive was able to engage directly with an influential senator who had the same feelings and, 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 and kind of ethos that they did, and they were able to move action forward. So when you ask like how amazing it was received back then, it was just unbelievable, and the sky was the limit. At this point... Um, again, the same way content has just become like this word is the same way like branded contents become this word. Like we really need to kind of like set up goals and objectives and really try to think about what we're looking to achieve when we do these things. Um, because I think what you're seeing is that this has been around for 10 years. If you talk to print magazines, they'll say they created native with advertorial and it's been around for decades. Okay, fair. So like if it's been around for that long. Are we foolish enough to not think that brands could story tell themselves or are going to get great talent and agencies to be able to story tell themselves? Is the value for a publisher now to say, hey, we could tell a story better than you? Is that naive, right? So like in the beginning, it was huge and it was new, but it was huge because we really thought about like what the value was. The value was let's get these stories that were already being told and let's amplify them. Now it's kind of like, what is this new way of how we should be positioning this, if at all, right? And and what is the value that it's going to bring to companies and brands? So, Being at the ground floor when this whole thing started, you guys were there at a time where you could make mistakes, but you guys grew so much, you have infinite successes. Did you learn more from the success or did you learn from the mistakes and how did you, if any, what, what, give me, give us some anecdotes. Yeah. I remember, I remember the first, uh, native advert or social marketing campaign that I did was with Blackberry and it was my third day on the <laughs> job and I didn't even know how to use the content management system. And the way that it was looked at back then was the same sort of way that it was looked at if you're doing any sort of brand campaign where like these are assets, there's a date when they could launch, right? Like BlackBerry's literally launching a phone um, that no one knows about. So you're signing like an NDA and information can't get out there. And I remember uploading the content into the slideshow, being scared to ask a question because I was young and like assumed that I should have known it and published this article, right? That like accidentally, I thought I was creating a preview link that went live, went into Google News and the BlackBerry executive got a note that this content was out there. And I'm like, I'm done, right? Like this is it, you know, go, <laughs> going back to those drunk days, right? Uh, <laughs> writing music, uh, blogs, and you know, that's gonna be the rest of my life. And like, it was bad, right? And like, we had to delete it and it's really hard to scrape Google. I'm sure everyone in here knows how difficult it is to scrape URLs off Google um, or do redirects. Um, but like, that was a huge lesson for me, not so much of like, Okay, like we need to be smart and 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 steady when it comes to these things. But like these things like they matter, but they don't really matter, right? It's not like the end of the world. And the value of what we're really bringing, right, is what is a unique perspective and a different way of looking at things that people otherwise can't see, right? Because they're just not there yet or or are unable to do just because of the reins that are on them like within their company. And that was kind of like an amazing canvas of learning uh, that we saw at the Huffington Post, which was, what's our identity, right? The Huffington Post was an aggregator. It was a blog, but we were a tech company, right? Like we were one of the first technology companies uh, in publishing that really kind of pushed forward and challenged the way that people thought about investing in tech and building their own tech. Uh, at that time, right, it was all about social and search. So no matter what, if somebody was looking up Hillary Clinton, Huffington Post had to be first, right? Um, if they're on social, Huffington Post had to be seen. When it came to our pitch to a brand, we would say it like an IBM. It wasn't about the content and the audience. We would say, if you publish through the Huffington Post CMS, you're going to win at search. Yeah. Right? And that is insanely valuable. Yeah. So I think you always learn more from the mistakes. Um it's amazing as you grow, right? Like when you're younger, you're like, I'm out of a job. I'm freaking out, right? Then you have like real problems when you grow up and, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> have kids or family or anything like bills. Um, but but those those failures, I think, are extremely important. I think when people are constantly just hitting their successes, then they're over-assumptive and, you know, they feel like they really understand and have it figured out. I feel like that's where branded content is now. I feel like everyone is like, totally like they're putting that on RFPs. They're saying, Hey, we need you to tell our stories. Everyone has their own units and their teams. And they're so uh, confident that this is like the thing because people are asking for it. No one's thinking about like, well, what's the true value, right? Huffington Post back in the day, it wasn't about branded content is important because we're telling your story. It was, we were, we were so strong and, um, 
and ahead of the game in search and social, and that's why you worked with us. Now I think that's the way that people have to look at it. And I kind of wish we'd see a lot more failures um, within these companies because I think it would allow them to kind of right the ship sooner right. than later because no matter what, there's going to be a change and there's constantly a change. And I don't see enough companies out there really thinking about the what's next or trying to push and story tell to the what's next. They're just hoping that this thing could sustain, you know, and allow them to keep going. Yeah, and that's really interesting. I think, you know, the fact that these studios have become sausage factories it's rinse and repeat on the style of content etc um and allowing the client to have that editorial voice when they've actually partnered with you for that that editorial expertise to create the content but what do you think do you think that branded content model is just done forever and something new is coming or is there just tweaks that need to be made to it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely not done forever. I mean, I think that there are a lot of amazing creators and thinkers within publishers and within agencies that help kind of drive and push these things forward. What I think we're going to start to see is like, what does reputation mean? I think brands are actually ahead of this. I think publishers are going to start to realize this, which is if I'm a publisher, right? Like, and I'm subscribing to say, or, or, or I'm a reader and I'm subscribing to say the New York Times, but I only read one vertical or one author. Um, but I want to read that author no matter where they are. Like, I want to read that author if they're published on NBC. I want to read that author on Twitter. I want to read that author on Facebook. Then are we starting to kind of shift the value and the story of kind of what that relationship is, right? So we sell branded content, or not we, but like the royal we, sell branded content based on your reputation domain. Like you are going to work with BuzzFeed because, you know, BuzzFeed is great at A, B, C, and D, and we're going to help you tell a story. Um, I think that'll change, right? I think they're going to want to work with you, but they're going to want to work with you not because you're BuzzFeed, but because of what you could bring to them everywhere, right? And that's kind of where I think you'll start to see this shift. And that's where I think you see a lot of agency investment going. Whereas GE may not just want to do a sponsored content campaign on the New York Times. GE may want to do a campaign everywhere, but may want to leverage the New York Times expertise to be mm -hmm. able to power that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's authority versus popularity, right? Right. I don't think it's about destination anymore, which is what it used to be. Like, how much traffic am I going to get on the homepage? And, you know, is this headline going to be clickable? And let's create this for the Huffington Post audience. I think it's more so how can we build this so that it is digestible and, um, interesting for anyone anywhere. And I think that's hard for publishers to think about because they're not set up that way and they've never been set up that way. But that's where I see things shifting. Awesome. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Um, Jared, you've brought us a treat, uh, something that we're going to share. Uh, what did you bring? Yeah, I actually um, forgot and stopped at the local coffee shop. So I was going to pick up something last minute. However, they're lemon rosemary cookies, which are actually my favorite type of cookies. So Win. Great. Everybody wins. All right. Cookies it is. Coming up, who should actually be curating the content that the consumer consumes? Hi, it's Mark Rico. I want you to listen to this. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. It's a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com dot com slash mouth media network hiring used to be hard multiple job sites stacks of resumes a confusing review process but today hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done zip com slash mouth media network zip recruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards but they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology zip recruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job as applications come in zip recruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Mouth Media Network. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks again for the snack. Uh, that was delicious. 
kind of drawing on my own experience in, in, in the publishing space, going from uh, a place where over monetization of the of an impression uh, to now having the subscription model sort of win out um, against the two, not necessarily that they're uh, mutually independent, but very much where the weight of or the emphasis of where our business strategy is um, in subscriptions. How have you seen the role or so the relationship between content and the consumer or the reader uh, change? What is really um, interesting in terms of kind of what you laid out, which is have we have we gone too deep on the impression now we're all in on subscriptions, which by the way, everyone can't be a subscription service, right? So there's going to be something new. I think goes back to this general notion of the broadness of the media business, right? Or the broadness of content has actually hindered us from succeeding and growing, right? We, we even today, we talk about, well, um, what's the business of BuzzFeed versus the business of the Washington Post versus the business of Netflix? Um, all of them are insanely different. However, we want to bundle them all together as either successes and failures of what's happening in media. And, and that has a lot to do with the preconceived ideas and notions of like how we grow a business or how we look at success, right? Like the, the idea that if you started a media company today, and you said, okay, like I need to build a revenue model. Instead of thinking of something new that's completely core to maybe what you're looking to do and build your business, and there's companies that have done this really well, like the Skim and Girl Boss, um, you'll immediately go to this idea of like, well, what's our ad model, right? Or what's our subscription model? Because those are the models that have worked for A, B, C, and D. So, of course, you know, those are the models that we have to work within. And that's completely kind of blown up and fucked so many companies from being able to succeed, not just in terms of what their growth in business should be, but with their identity, right? That's kind of how that commoditization comes to be um, because they're backing into pre-existing ideas of what a business and what revenue and what growth should be. When companies start, right, or when media companies start or when they're thinking about something new, it's extremely hard to unlearn what you've already learned, right? Like that is actually like extremely difficult. To learn something new is easy, right? To unlearn something that you already know is extremely hard. And we've seen that happen time and time again in this business because people are trying to think about and work within the confines of what's already happening within the industry, even though we see writing on the wall that those confines are like bringing people down, that that moving to subscriptions and and there's only so many people in this world. And, you know, you have conversations of like what's happening with advertising and if advertising works and the threat of, you know, Facebook and Google. Um, it's kind of self-inflicting injuries because you're not unlearning, right, what you already know and trying to push towards something new. So when we think about what happened with branded content, right, and um, whether or not uh, we love the idea and and we, that like, I'm saying we so that I don't say I, but like <laughs> we, right, think about what branded content is now versus what it is before. At least it was something that got us out of our comfort zone, right? At least it was something that allowed us to redefine what this value was and what, the value was for the creator and what the value was for the consumer and what the value was for commercially. Um, what are the metrics we should be looking at, right? It's not just about eyeballs, but it's about shares. Um, it's about social impressions. I remember like when we first launched branded content at Time Inc., a huge component was if this was tweeted, it would carry the handle of your brand, which now changed the whole entire idea of what an impression and growth would be. Because, say, uh, Dove um, Ice Cream was sponsoring the Royal Baby, uh, People Magazine tweeting out photos of the Royal Baby that says brought to you by at Dove ice cream or whatever it is, now you have new opportunities to grow reach and grow impressions, but you're actually recreating the model and recreating the value that you bring. So what we see now, right, um, and it's happening today, is media companies are struggling and they're looking at what Facebook's doing well, what Google's doing well, and how they could own that, right? Or they're looking at new things like Snapchat and, 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 and like TikTok, and they're saying, well, how can we bring these things in and do those things differently? Instead of saying like, what are we? 
What is our identity? What's the new value of what our business should be? And help push those things forward. Because you want to know what's amazing? Companies have done that and have been extremely successful in doing that. However, there's this fear, right, that 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 we do not want to take risks. So it's like an analysis by paralysis approach of being like, well, we don't want to do this. Should we do this? Should we not do this? Six months down the road, you're already lapped, right? So, so the concern for me now, uh, especially with this talk of subscriptions, is yes, you know, the Washington Post and New York Times, the companies that have built this business over years and years and years and years, of course, should continue to be building that. But it concerns me when other companies are like thinking that subscription is the model, right? Maybe they should be thinking about something different. Like, what does it look like when a publisher is, you know, a talent manager, right? What does it look like if you're BuzzFeed and you're actually managing creators that have huge influence on Twitter and Facebook and other social platforms? And the draw to those creators writing for BuzzFeed isn't, hey, write for BuzzFeed because you'll be on the BuzzFeed homepage and you'll get impressions. It's, hey, write for BuzzFeed. We'll help manage your PR. We'll get you distributed. We'll help you create content. All things that Facebook and Google and Instagram and those influencer networks can't do. And what does the role of the publisher become then? And then is your value higher and so forth? So like those are the things that I think we need to be looking at. It's really easy to say, right, on this show and when you don't work within a company. But as someone who has done these things and and kind of have blown up these sort of models, that's the only way that you actually make an impact and survive. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. What is branded content? Because there's so many terms for it, right? What was it in 2010 when you were at HuffPost? And what is it now? Yeah. So branded content in 2010 was a pure vehicle to like distribute your content or your information or your brand farther than you could today. So um, I don't know when FBX started getting really powerful and when uh, I don't know the exact date that mobile newsfeed launched, but these are before you would put stuff on Facebook and Twitter as a brand on your own and do paid media, right? You would actually use someone like the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or Vice or others because they knew how to build social content. I mean, we built Rebel Mouse and we dubbed it as a social CMS. So we would work with brands and publishers and say, hey, look, don't invest in your technology. We're going to help you get distributed. We're going to help you get discovered, right? This was a whole different world, right, before now that brands could do this on their own and these large kind of distribution platforms have teams to help manage it. Now branded content is more so in the sense of what's your voice, right? Like like what's creative about it? Can we help institute a new way of thinking or doing that you otherwise can't do because you may not have invested in it on your side, but it's not about scale. I mean, the one thing that I think we've seen is that scale has totally hurt every single part of this industry. Um, we don't even know, like the idea, right? Like we talk about impressions and scale. The idea that the five, like how many people are in this room? Five people in this room are equally valuable to an advertiser is wrong, right? Like we may have different interests. We may have different likes. Um, we may be able to be swayed. I may be stubborn, right? You may not be. Uh, but when you go on the web and when you're targeting and, and, and looking for scale, you don't dissect those traits. So, so if you really kind of think about the whole model, it's so broken, right? And, and, and people don't want to see that because we need things to keep going. But if we're really honest with ourselves, it's broken. So branded content now needs to be, how can you tell your story better? What are the tools to enable that? But it's not about distribution, right? Because distribution can be done on its own. It's more so about how can we help tell this story and do this together, which by the way, is like, like, I think we're on the tail end of that, right? I think that's changing now. And, you know, anyone who's listening to this that works at a creative agency or elsewhere probably believes that they could tell a better story than, you know, working directly with the publisher. And if publishers are setting up confines of saying, look, the value to work with us is that you get to distribute this to our audience, right, on our site, brands are going to be like, look, that's not the draw for me anymore. I need to get this everywhere. So there needs to be a new pitch. Can we talk about content in the context of news, then and now. And, you know, what's your sense of the headwinds, bar fake news and all the other um, tags you want to put on it? What are the real headwinds for news and how does it survive? Um, assume, you know, the Washington Post, these big news publishers have longevity, they have legacy, they have authority. How do they maintain that and still remain a valuable resource. Yeah, so so the one thing that I think we, and it's really hard, but it's been something that I've been obsessing over lately, is we talk about premium, right? And we talk about reputation as it pertains to publishers and creators, 
but we can't quantify it, right? Like we don't know how to measure the value of premium, right? There, there are publishers out there that when you go and hit their paywall, right, it'll say you should subscribe to us because um, like real news matters, right? Or you should subscribe to us because journalism costs money. But those things aren't tangible, right? They're, they're not quantitative things that you as a reader fully understand. Um, what I love lately uh, it, and what I've seen the New York Times do is that one, they're TLDRing their, their own articles. So they're basically summarizing their huge investigative pieces in order to own both of those messages. But they're also giving exposure to the efforts that go behind that work, right? They're telling their readers, this had three writers and took a year and a half and cost a half a million dollars in budgeting. So you as a reader who are coming, maybe seeing this news outlet for the first time or multiple times is one saying, wow, that's a lot of work. That went into this, so it's most likely real, right, and interesting, and I should put time into it. And two, when you're being asked to be paid for it, you're like, of course. I mean, if they're spending millions of dollars to deliver me this information and they want a dollar, of course I'll give them a dollar. We need more of this. And that quantification of premium, I think, is how we battle fake news. Uh, I've been calling it proof of effort Um and there's a really smart person, and I'll give a shout out, Josh Elman, actually, who um, is an amazing person uh, in, in, in the tech industry, uh, actually came up with it. So if he listens to this, um, uh, I want him to know that I am giving him credit. But, but it's this idea that like when you read something or when you consume something, how come we don't know the efforts behind it, right? Like even if you go to Medium today and you read a Medium blog, it'll tell you it takes eight minutes to read it. Do I care that it takes eight minutes to read it? Or do I want to read an article that maybe you 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 published and it says it took you three and a half hours to write it? Well, holy shit, if it's going to take me three minutes to read it, but you took three and a half hours out of your life and you're a chief executive at this company, then it's probably worth reading. And that's kind of the shift that I want to see in this space. What I'm concerned about is that we're hyper curating and you know, there's a great book by Eli Pariser called uh, Filter Bubbles, Filter Bubbles. Um, and and what's continuing to happen is we're continuing to push people into these bubbles, right? That's what retargeting happens. Like that's when like my mom who I saw her newsfeed the other day and um, she's a Republican, but she's not like all the way that way, but she follows chicks on the right, right? And chicks on the right is publishing all this content that's just not real news. But how does she know what the information is and if it's being delivered correctly? And is Facebook the arbiter of that truth? Like, is it Facebook's role to tell people who can publish and who can't publish and what they can read and what they can't read? However, we can figure out ways to quantify efforts, right? And expose information. It's similar to like when you smoke cigarettes, right? Like if I pick up a pack of cigarettes and it says, these will kill you, Right. They're not saying do not smoke these, but they're giving me the ingredients behind which I'm going to consume. They're disclaiming. Right. So I can now make a choice. Right. Now, people will still want to smoke cigarettes, um, but they have more information behind what they're about to consume in order to make a better decision. Information doesn't have that right now. And that's extremely dangerous and scary, right? That when you read something, you cannot seek provenance, right? Like if you watch a video and this is the biggest issue right now, and that's going to be coming, like all these like fake videos of Barack Obama's speech and the deep fakes with Donald Trump, it looks and sounds exactly like them speaking. So if you do not want to take extra time to know whether or not that is real, you're going to assume it's real. So what is a baseline way for us to be able to expose, right, quantitative metrics that show the efforts that go behind something? And how do we make it really easy across the web for people to be able to do that? I don't have the answer, but that's what but, I think would solve So how do you, um, do you think that this is a result of, let's just call it the last two political years where pre-2016, everybody's posting everything and da 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 and now we, there's a thing called fake news that got out there. Is this the – what is the fallout for the publishers of the 2016 sort of like realization that there might be things we're proliferating that aren't truthful? What's the fallout with the publishers and now how are, do they need to react? And if – let's forget about times. In your opinion, how should they be reacting? Yeah, yeah. So 
It's really unfortunate in a way because all of these institutions that have always delivered reliable news and information shouldn't change the way that they do that, right? And just because um, people are claiming fake news and doing certain things, the worst thing that can happen is that people start questioning the way that they do things. And yes, there is manipulation. And yes, there are people out there that are taking advantage and doing certain things that we need to be aware of, but we don't want to be able to remedy those issues Um while also kind of deterring and 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 pushing the ones that we trust to think differently about what they do. Like, like there are huge editors in the space that have come out and said, we're going to continue to do our job and do what we always did because that's what we do. Now, you're correct, right? We are in a space right now where um, even if even if the news is real and people see the facts and it is all laid out in front of them, they may still say, well, it's not true and I don't believe it. And the question is, how much of an effort needs to be put on converting those people? Um, is it important to, can they be saved? Right. And like, what are the tools in order to do it? Because it's, I have strong, like I have strong feelings, strong, like strong personal feelings to say when Alex Jones was banned from every social network and Infowars was banned from every social network. Are we censoring people across mediums um, even though we know that this information is extremely dangerous, right? Um, is it our role to censor those things if consumers choose to do it, right? Like, do we ban cigarettes and do we ban alcohol because we know it's bad or do we provide enough information so that people can make those choices? I think what's happened and you've identified is that through all of these efforts and us trying to expose and show this information, it's still not getting there and it's still not resonating. So I think this is a deeper concern of, what is truth, right? Truth is objective, but as truth becomes subjective in the eyes of how people want to see it and how much time should be spent by these institutions that are doing the right thing and doing their job to try to figure out and satisfy other areas and other kind of distribution platforms and places that content is being consumed is that like is that a losing battle right and again i don't know that answer but it's really scary to think about the fact that information could be out there and people could still say no right people could still say that's just not what i believe and that's just not yeah the facts and i'm going to read this right or i'm going to read that and that's where i think we are 30 years ago newspapers television stations right the news the local news um dan rather tom brokaw these types of people they were sort of the gatekeepers who is the gatekeeper and the curator in this day and age when there's now millions of options? How do we choose and how should we be choosing and how sh who should be curating? Who do we give that hand of God to mm -hmm. and how does that work? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think it, I think it depends. <laughs> I think it depends on who you ask. So, you know, the way that I think of it is that is the value of why you subscribe. You know, we were talking earlier about models, right? And we were saying subscriptions can't work for everyone, but they'll work for a few. And I think what we're seeing is the people that are willing to subscribe to news outlets and people to provide that information, trust that information, right? That information is being sent to them. They understand the ethics behind that work. You know, there's, there's history and history of that, right? Like think of, think of how old the Washington Post is, how old the New York Times is, how old the Wall Street Journal is and how old Facebook is, right? So it's like, when you look at trust and delivery, you know, you have a hundred plus years of reputation behind the curation of and delivery of information versus, you know, these platforms and things that are out there. So those I think are longstanding and the longevity in my mind is forever when it comes to the importance of those. Now, what's sad is like that used to be how it was in local regions and just like not even state, but like county levels, you would be able to have that information delivered to you based on your town and the same ethics and reputation was tied there. And Unfortunately, right, those things just can't be funded anymore. So so we're broadening, right, the scope, but the reputation and value of those curators still lasts. But what I think we have to ask ourselves is, and as we invest in, right, what we want to be building and what we think the future should look like, and this was kind of goes back to the proof of effort stuff, is people are going to read what they want to read. And we want them to, right? Like we we live in a world where whether we like it or not, 
information is out there uh, and, you know, could be consumed and engaged with wherever and whenever, whether you do it on Twitter, whether you do it on Flipboard, whether you do it on Google, whether someone sends something to you over text, um, you know, if you do it on the dark web, right, like um, and, and blockchain, right? So, like, the information is out there. So I think we need to start investing in what a world looks like when individuals are curating their own worldview. So yeah. I want to ask you this. So last we got an awesome opportunity to spend time with a, a futurist, right? So somebody who's thinking about if the device that you currently deliver is gone. Yeah. By the way, I love that job title. I know. I, I, I was, yeah. 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 It was so working cool. towards that. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I, I, it was incredibly interesting because he was challenging us at Hearst, in particular newspapers. Imagine there's no such thing as a website or a paper. What's the value? And uh, obviously, it's the IP. It's the individual contributors, the writers. Um, and so you take that notion. You say, okay, um, one writer, you pair it to blockchain. And then you think about a distributed model based on some level of, you know, there's an accuracy meter or something like that. Do you think that there is an opportunity here to start, like, will those traditionally sort of middle tier, the, the, the delivery device, disappear and does that empower the reader to know more, or does it actually lead them more? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, no, like, no, no. Is that good or bad at the end of the day? Right. Uh, I mean, I'm. I mean, I think it's the reality. I think that the newspaper industry, uh, the writing was on the wall because they doubled down on the fact that the print medium was what made it unique and special, and that people were never going to lose this 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 object um, until they did. Right. right and then right. it was kind of like, oh man, right, like. Right exactly what you said, like, what is our value and what do we bring? Um, I think the distributed model is the future. I think that people have relationships with creators directly. Uh, you've seen this in influencer marketing. Um, you know, it's gone absolutely insane, <laughs> but you kind of see that that relationship is important, right? Like, I don't want to, it's a bad analogy, but but kind of work with me here is like when you go see a band. So I love fish, right? The band fish. So like when I go and see fish at the garden, uh, the concessions are there. The band plays. The lights are awesome. Everything's done. I see a great show and I leave. I don't know who's managing the band. I don't know who the PR team is. I don't know who manages concessions like I actually do because I love the band. But just yeah. <laughs> like, um, but like but like those things work because the band is why I'm there and I'm thankful for everyone and the operators around it for making the band happen. I think we're going to see this in media, right? I think reputation will move from the domain level for many of these companies to creator direct where you may not go to the San Francisco Chronicle uh, and, and, and you're really not doing it now, right? You're not going through the homepage and going through the sections. You're not reading the paper like you would same way with the website, but you're following a writer, right? And you're following that writer, like for the most part on Twitter and or in search and you're clicking on it and it takes you to the site. But what you want is that direct relationship with the writer. What I really believe, and I think that it's what's best for the industry and hopefully the futurist feels this way because then I'll feel really <laughs> empowered. But like, this is something that's so obvious to me, which is the role of media companies is similar to like the role of like a music management company like Warner Brothers. It's like Warner Brothers doesn't care if you go to warnerbrothers.com, right? Warner Brothers doesn't care if they're getting credit for something, but they do want you to see Ed Sheeran and they want you to buy merch and they want you to go to the shows, right? And they make that happen. And I think that the media industry should think that way because that's something that Facebook and Google and Instagram don't do, right? So maybe the San Francisco Chronicles move is let's get the most influential people in the Bay Area, right? Let's give them the tools that they need to put information out there. Let's pay them. Let's manage them. Let's give them PR. And what we actually become is an amazing operation and management agency for people to deliver information in this region. But wait, let me, so let me, let me challenge you on that. But what you're essentially saying is what was happening, happening with nightly news. You went to, you watched Tom Brokaw or Peter Jennings, or Dan Rather. They didn't do the whole thing. They weren't all the producers, the editors, the writers, and all that stuff. They were the front person, right? And there was a whole, and you were already consuming your news like that. It just never fully existed. But then you've got like Peggy Noonan's, mm -hmm. like the other columnists in the post, the writers in the post. So you've had it. It's existed before. It may not have existed in this digital 
format as prevalent where the, like you put on a front person, but I also hearing you say that makes me go back to my days starting as a journalist. When I went from like a print reporter to a TV person, they're like sell out, wanted to be on camera, all of that (laughs) sort of stuff. You're not a real newspaper. You're not a real journalist. The people that write print that get their hands dirty are the ones. But then inevitably San Francisco Chronicle is making video. New York Times is making video everybody's moving towards the model of the TV that was, you know, going back to Walter Cron- Cronkite. So is that essentially what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you, um, and thank you for the challenge. And I said bad analogy, but <laughs> but you're right. I mean, look, I don't think that it's that cut and dry. It's just something that I see as a real thing because like, look, like there is only when one Ben Thompson and, you know, Stratechery is, you know, an amazing thing. However, Ben Thompson has showed that, like, if you have an audience and if you have, you know, a thought and you bring value that you may not necessarily need everybody around you in order to make that happen. Now, same argument. Does it make sense for The Wall Street Journal to buy Ben Thompson, right, and get Ben Thompson to start building Stratechery on The Wall Street Journal? Does that help their bottom line and help their business? So where I think, like, the... The change should be is not necessarily, hey, publishers, you're in trouble because the creatives are building audiences and they're going to leave and be able to do direct. What I think is that content is extremely undervalued, right? I think that even like a subscription and the price that we pay um, is low because we really don't know how to price it. There's no like free agency market for how content and creators should work. It's just kind of like out there. Um But what I think it does is it's really allowing them to recalibrate their models. It's allowing them to say, well, if if we got Ben Thompson to write for us, does our subscription go up? Right. Do you as a um, do you as a consumer, would you pay, you know, twenty dollars to subscribe to The New York Times um, or would you just pay twenty dollars to read Corey Sika's style section? Right. And then pay for another subscription somewhere else. So like that's where I start to see these things changing. But that's where I see publishers being able to leapfrog the concerns of ad revenue and Facebook and Google, because these companies are people like structured companies. They build talent. I mean, look at Axios. Axios has created celebrities out of every single one of their writers. Whether you knew them before, you know them now, and every single writer is a celebrity, right? So like they're kind of showing the opportunity to give value. And a lot of those writers probably appreciate being there and aren't going to leave, right? And feel like they're building their brand there and it's important to keep them there. So that's where I think it becomes interesting. And going back to like the free agency thing, what's even more interesting is like, if you think of creators as like athletes, right? Which is very true, right? Like the way you engage, the way that you consume, um, I mean, all the Jenners are making way more money than like LeBron and right. Right. Anyone there, but in the creative market and especially in news, there's, there is no free agency, right? Like I remember growing up and my mom being like, I can't believe um, this quarterback makes $20 million. Well, this quarterback makes $20 million because there's 28 other teams that are willing to pay him 19. Right. So like, what does that look like, right? When these creators start having open auctions for their value. Hey, I have 100,000 Twitter followers. I'm creating three videos a day and two articles. I have this huge audience. I could continue doing it myself and managing myself. Or hey, you know, um, Esquire, do you want me to be your next Tom Brokaw, right? Like, do you want me to be there? And like, that to me is what makes content exciting again, right? We're constantly talking about like layoffs and consolidation and fighting with Facebook and Google. And it's like, guys, wake up and think about how we could actually make this thing something unique and valuable for all parties involved. Coming up, we get personal with Jared and discover his philosophy on balancing work and family life. Do you love to laugh? Do you love great interviews with a lot of heart? Do you like good stories? Do you like to hear about life? Well, good news, because if you listen to a show called Funny People Talking, all of that happens, right, Danielle? All of it happens. Every single thing you said on that list and more. Well, Elsie, does any of it not happen? It all happens. Come on, Elsie. Okay. It really right. happens. Okay, well, you should join us on Funny People Talking on Mouth Media Network. You can find us anywhere. You can find a great podcast. And I know it's true because these people loved it. <laughs> Only for a short time while they were listening to the show, Then Life Sucked. Listen to Funny People Talking. 
covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Um, let's get a little personal. You're watching your two twins develop on a daily basis, and they're consuming content every day. Do you restrict and or kind of contain the amount of content they get and how they get it? Yeah, it's a good uh, question. So, yes, I have twin boys named Knox and Nash. Um, they're only two. They're almost two. So um, their content consists of Coco and uh, Moana and very bizarre YouTube videos, which like I strongly encourage anyone to go down that rabbit hole of like what they deliver kids um, and what my kids actually enjoy versus other things. Um I've never really – I don't use media as a distraction, um, even though I felt like that would be a benefit of mine multiple times, especially like with twins. Um, anyone who has twins will know that it's chaos like 24-7. So like if you could turn on the TV and slow things down, it's actually um, nice. But we don't do that yet. Um, we uh, – it's actually quite interesting. You know, I don't – I don't put my sister bought them Kindles um, and we're like, oh, my God. Right. Are we going to put the Kindles in front of the boys? And, you know, should we wait for that yet? And what I found is that they learn a lot um, by engaging and watching. Uh, we try to limit it. We play a lot. I mean, I'm a music head. So, like, we're playing music. We literally like we got them a piano. So we like I'll sit down with the guitar and play music with them. Um, and that's a lot of fun. But I did notice, like, we don't do a lot of TV, but they ask for the TV. And and that is interesting to me in a way because um, even though they'll, like, recite something from Coco or, like, say Coco Coco because they don't say too much, um, it is amazing how it pulls people in. Um, so, like, yeah, we're concerned, um, but, like, not over-concerned. Like, I grew up in front of the, I mean, I'm an 80s, 90s baby. Like, I literally, like, grew up three inches away from the TV um, and – I'm definitely messed up, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm like, okay, I think, <laughs> but I'm here. <laughs> but, but the cool thing too, and what you'll see with children is that, that like the same way that they point to the TV, like they'll go to one of my guitars and they'll be like, like play guitar and I'll play guitar and they'll, and they'll like have fun and laugh. Kids, kids have no attention span. So like the thing is in the end, even if you turn on the TV for three minutes, they're, they're over it. Right. And it's like, where, like, like, where do you want to fire, you know, a firecracker to just keep them distracted at that point? But I'm not strong advocate against it. Uh, I, I like media. I like information. Um, I actually like the Disney musicals and stuff that they can listen to. Um, so I don't have a strong feeling, but it's definitely something that's addictive uh, that I can tell already they, they want to jump on. What first got you into media? I mean, and was there a person involved in that shift or that kick in that direction? Yeah. So, so I, um, again, I've always loved music. My mom's a, my mom is still a dance choreographer. Um, and growing up, what was the most amazing thing is that she, she, uh, she owned two dance studios in Jersey. Um, and music was always in our life. And the coolest part was that every time we went to back then it was coconuts. If anyone remembers coconut records, but Jack's Jack's records in red bank is still around. And that was my local record shop. Um, but like we would go there and my mom would be like, get anything you want because she'd write it off, which now I could say, I guess, because we're like way down the line. Uh, the IRS won't call. But uh, we like that to me was like an amazing experience because like think of pre-streaming, right? You really had to like pick out the music that you really wanted. Um, and then like your parents would be like, if you only know one song, you're not getting it, right? You need to know three songs, right? Or if it has parental advisory, I remember getting the dog father. It was like the end of the world um, when I got that album. But that was an amazing access point for me when it came to media um, and being able to consume uh, information and, and like poetry, like Dylan and, you know, uh, uh, like so forth. So like that, that, that was kind of opening it up. Um, I literally had thousands and thousands of CDs, listen to music 24 seven. Um, that's when I kind of got into music journalism, read a lot of Rolling Stone, read a lot of Hunter S. Thompson, hyper obsessed with like biographies and like the rock star type life of people that were like barely alive, but making such an impact on the world. And, you know, the distress and um, kind of that whole lifestyle just amazed me. Um, and that kind of jumped me into it. Right. That's kind of what jumped me into music journalism. Um, the music journalism component of my life is really what told me that no one really knows anything. And like people are constantly looking for something new and unique and exciting. Um, so like, I hate like the fake it till you make it mentality, but that was really one component where I'm like, wow, like if you could really do something and make a difference and get people excited, like they will follow you, right? Like people, people love a good story. People like having a conversation, people like sympathy and all of these things. So 
I guess like long story short, what got me into media was my mom and uh, was my mom through music. And to this day, right, when like, I mean, we're on a podcast right now, but I barely listen to podcasts because whenever I have my Air, uh, my AirPods in my ear, it's music. And um, kind of to this day, that's my passion and helps drive things forward and the obsession where one day I hope like I could be interviewing, you know, um, uh, or or I've interviewed lots of musicians, but writing the book of, you know, one of my favorite musicians. What should we put our phones down and start doing yeah. instead? Yeah. So I have... um. I have I forgot what it's called. What's the new Apple application called where where it time limits you on social apps? Yeah, it's screen time. Yeah, I hit it every day at eight forty five a.m. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. So like I turn it off. Like th- like that's the only constant that I have every day is that at eight forty five I have to turn off my my screen time because I already hit it because like I'm obsessed with social. Like I actually look at Twitter as a hobby. Like I love reading it and consuming it. Um, but like it's horrible, right? Like um, I mean. I have kids now, so so I throw my phone down. Like I literally make sure that I'm home every day for two hours to hang out with them before they go to sleep. Uh, no matter what, I schedule meetings around it, but I put my phone down for that. Um, but I think the other question is, and people have brought this up, is like you know we're con- like yes, we're gonna hit a phase where we're phone addiction, and and we're gonna find out how bad these things are for our like bodies and our and our psyche. But on the other side of it, it's like. Think about how amazing this thing is that's in your hand and the access and like, like, like just music. The fact that I could stream any song or the fact that I could engage with anyone. Like I could go on Twitter and engage with the celebrity that I've never met in my life through an app mention. Um, and that access is just completely new. Right. Or, you know, the catalog of photos that I have of my children. I was thinking the other day um, I was like taking a video of uh, one of my dogs with one of my sons. And I was thinking back, like I grew up with two dogs and there's no videos of those dogs because right. my dad would have had to like pull out, you know, the video camera. Right, right, right. So, so while I think we should put our phones down and like, we do need to like go outside and love life and, you know, be with anything that matters to us, right? Whether that's family or your job or things that you're passionate about. I also think that we're very quick to dismiss the amazingness of kind of what our phone has brought us and and the memories and things that are add-ons to our life that, you know, our parents and our parents' parents and beyond, you know, never had access to, um, which kind of goes full circle to what we said in the beginning, like documentation, content documentation, information documentation is such an under... Uh, rated thing, right? That today we take for granted. But the fact that I have 15,000 photos in my phone um, and I have every single day of my children's life on the cloud, like hopefully can't go anywhere. We'll put on the blockchain to make sure that it doesn't disappear forever. Um, But like that to me is something important that I think we should recognize. We're so quick to say how bad phones are, but we all should should kind of recognize the amazingness that it's opened up. A lot of people are listening to this and going to learn from you. Who are you learning from? Yeah. Um, so many people. So uh, the past the past year, I've been CEO of a company called Poet, um, which is in the blockchain media space. And it's really kind of opened up my eyes to kind of different ways of thinking and more so like different ways of learning and 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 kind of like provocateurs. Uh, the blockchain space is actually for anyone, uh, anyone wanting to learn or I call it the rowdy and the dowdy. Like if you want to hate on something or if you want to become hyper obsessed with something, the people in that space are unbelievable, right? The way that they're thinking about what does it look like to curate information or what does it look like to be incentivized to do so? What does it look like when there's no government, right? What does it look like to break down society as we know it today? And like a lot of these things are crazy, but then a lot of them like really open up your way of thinking. So a lot of the people that I've actually been following and listening to are in the blockchain space. People like Joe Lubin of consensus. Um, I could go really deep, like, like Ryan Selkis of Masari uh, are really amazing in terms of really forcing yourself to think, right? Like I said earlier that like unlearning what you've already learned is the hardest thing. When you go into this world, you're like, oh, my God, are these people crazy or is this actually the world that we should be living in? And a lot of the topics of conversation that we had today are because I've been able to go like really, really, really deep on these things from what I've been learning. Like, what does it look like when, you know, platforms don't exist and you wear your reputation on your head? Right. Like there was just an announcement in China where like where like you carry like a digital card and your credit is shown. Right. So like you're walking through the street and it's like straight out of Black Mirror. Everybody knows how much debt you have to society and they're supposed to to judge you right like that is terrifying but these things are kind of happening so like when we start stretching the ways of doing this it allows us to start to identify and think differently about how we can move forward and um 
I am a, I am constantly uh, terrified of being complacent and, and this world is something that I strongly encourage anyone to look into again, whether you want to be rowdy and say, wow, this is really amazing stuff. Or like these people are insane. It at least allows you to think. Um, awesome. Uh, thanks again, Jared, for all the insights. Um, really quickly, a final word from you, um, that our listeners could, uh, kind of carry with them. And then I'm going to ask you, um, who are the types of people uh, that you want to connect with or who, if it's an individual person or a type of person, and then how are they going to reach you? Yeah. So uh, one final thought that I would say, I strongly encourage people to really start to think about like what it is we're looking to achieve and solve, right? As it pertains to, you know, content and media and information. Um what I'm worried about, again, are these kind of confinements of what's already happening and how can we retrofit what we're doing within these things instead of really thinking about something new, right, and kind of going for it. So I like to say, like, we're we're not living in a world of access anymore, right? Like, it's not so much um, – you know, you're paying for something to get something um, and it's just an equal exchange. I think we're in this world of what I've been calling like access plus benefits, which is what am I getting for an exchange and how is this going to make my life better, right? We're in kind of a hyper competitive world and people's time and attention is the only default, right? Like all of us only have 24 hours in the day. We all have different money in our bank accounts. Um, you know, we all have different social status. We all have different families at home. But the one thing that we all have, right, is 24 hours in a day. So if we know that, no matter what we're doing, whether that's building a business, right, whether that is um, kind of figuring out who I should have dinner with or how I should spend my time, um, that's the one thing that we know is the constant and that's important. And that will not grow, right? And that will not change. So when we talk about access plus benefits, and when we talk about the value of getting someone's attention, we really need to think about what that's going to bring to that person directly. So what does that all mean? Because that's super macro. Um, like an example now is kind of like to take it back home is what we were talking about with subscriptions, right? It's like, you want to give something free away for free for so long, and now you're going to offer a subscription for that. Something that you gave away for free for so long, you're now going to make people pay for it. They are going to say no. So when you do that, what else are they getting? What access plus benefits are they getting? And what do those new models look like? So that's something I strongly encourage. Um, who would I like to meet? I mean, I've been dying to meet Trey Anastasio from Fish forever. I've seen like <laughs> 200 shows. Um, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I don't know if this will get to him. It likely won't. Um, because I've tried multiple times, but again, like I think what's become clear is I'm a huge fan in the music space. Um, I love live music. Um, it's actually an area that I think is going to boom, um, in the next like few years, like, right. Like we think about live music as kind of being there and present, but you have home streaming, uh, you have people that are streaming live shows, right. From all these different venues that you could listen to at home, you could webcast people call it couch tour. So like, that's a huge area that I think is awesome. And I think the musicians, um, and the bands, right. Large or small are going to be extremely critical when it comes to like innovating and thinking differently about the media space and what could actually be done when you really think about the artist to fan type relationship, uh, and the technologies and products that are going to be built around that. So if Trey's out there, he could call me. Um, I'm not going to say my number on this, but you can reach me at Twitter at, at Jared Dicker or email me at Jared Dicker at Gmail. Thank you all for uh, listening to today's podcast. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. Um, for Natasha. See you next time. Can't wait. For Ritesh. Back next week. And this is Michael Villasenor signing off. Uh, catch you later. You've been listening to Content Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at contentshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. And episodes are available on our website, contentisyourbusiness.com, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. <laughs>